Thank you. Good morning. Welcome to Good News Church. It's great uh, to see you guys. Listen, the, uh, my name is Dave. I'm the campus pastor here at our World Golf Village campus. And these boxes, um, I've read that 40% of the kids who receive a box make a profession of faith and are followed up, and many, many churches are planted because of that. At Good News, we believe that our purpose is to make disciples together, and that begins and ends with evangelism. So if you have, are new to Good News, maybe you've seen me a few times put these little rings up on the stage and celebrate when people profess faith in Jesus. And maybe you didn't know exactly what I was doing or even what this was. So this is a, a small life ring. It's a picture of what happens when a person professes faith in Christ. They're rescued. Their eternal destiny is, is changed. At one time, they were hell-bound, and then Christ rescued them, and now they're heaven-bound. And so we place life rings on the stage to celebrate when a member of Good News leads a friend or a family member to faith in Jesus. And over the past several weeks, we've seen four different people profess faith in Christ. Uh, and that's a really, really good thing. Um, another thing maybe you are not familiar with yet is that on your chairs is something called the study. And the study is a chance for you to follow along with, with us as we do a several things. One, as we walk through the New Testament, reading together four days a week. And then there's also a space uh, on page 21 of this study. There's a place for you to take notes during the message. Um, that'll help you listen more actively. And then on the next page is our small group queue that we invite our small groups to use as they um, open scripture together. So I invite you to grab one of those and uh, use it this morning. And our study this morning is in John chapter 11. So I invite you to turn there. And I'm just going to read to begin um, two verses uh, from John chapter 11. Then we'll come back and we'll walk through a larger portion of it together. But listen, this is God's word. It's inspired, inerrant, infallible. It's our only rule for faith and practice. Verse 25, John chapter 11. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's spend just a moment in prayer. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, great is your faithfulness. Jesus, we ask that in these moments, as we open your word together, that you would demonstrate your faithfulness to us once again by taking the things that are true about Jesus and making them real to our hearts. Open deaf ears, change hard hearts, open blind eyes. And cause us to see afresh the greatness and glory of Jesus Christ. 
Jesus, we admit to you this morning that there is nothing and no one that could compare with you. And yet, we admit that we find our hearts dragged away to so many other things. In your unrelenting love, chase us down this morning. Draw us back with your amazing love and grace. May we leave here anchored to hope, a hope that we can share with a lost and dying world. For I pray that you would do all this to the praise of your glory, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Over these past several weeks, we've been walking through several passages in the Gospel of John where Jesus describes who he thinks he is. There's many, many, many opinions about who Jesus is, but we've been asking the question, who does Jesus think he is? And we've seen as we've walked through uh, these passages in John that Jesus thinks he's God in the flesh, that Jesus believes that he's fully God and fully man, and he is uniquely qualified to seek and to save the lost, the commission, the mission that God the Father gave to him to seek and to save the lost. That Jesus is fully God and fully man, and and maybe you're here this morning and that feels difficult to your mind or your heart to grasp how a, a man could be fully God and fully man at the same time. I'm just asking you to consider who Jesus says he is. Now, C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, says this, and it's helpful for speaking to our hearts about who Jesus thinks he is. And he says this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet And call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Who is Jesus? Who does he think he is? He thinks he's the infinite God-man come to earth to seek and to save that which was lost. He's the bread of life. He's not just an add-on to life. He's the bread of life. He's not a nice-to-have. He's a need-to-have. Jesus is the light of the world. 
We believe in Christianity like we believe in the sun, not only because we see it by its light, but because by its light we see everything else more clearly. Jesus said, I'm the door. Jesus Christ is the way in, all the way in to a community, a family, a forever family with an older brother who will always let us in and never let us down. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. This week, we come to Jesus' statement, I am the resurrection and the life. Now, these others, we know what bread is, and we know what light is, sort of, and we know what a door is, and we know what a shepherd is, but when we come to this one, the resurrection and the life, it's a little bit more of a head-scratcher. What exactly does it mean, a resurrection? In the Bible, ten, there are ten occurrences in Scripture of someone who's raised from the dead. There's three in the Old Testament. There's three in the New Testament. There's three that accompany the life of Jesus and his miracles. And that leaves one more, which is what all those resurrections point to. And the power from which all those resurrections happen, the resurrection of Jesus Christ himself, from the dead. And when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, he's saying this, the greatest proof for Christianity is Jesus Christ. And the greatest proof for Jesus Christ is his resurrection from the dead. The greatest proof for Christianity is Jesus, and the greatest proof for Jesus is his resurrection from the dead. Now, this morning, we're going to learn that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, and our action step this morning is that we would be hope dealers. Not dope dealers, but hope dealers. Now, do you, do you know anyone who could use some hope? I mean, this Wednesday, half the country woke up, and they were, they were devastated because their particular party lost one portion of the government, the House of Representatives. And the other half of the country woke up this on Wednesday morning devastated because they hadn't done as well as they thought they would do. Now, did you catch that? Half the country woke up devastated, and the other half of the country woke up devastated, which means what? Everybody could use some hope. We're surrounded by people who are desperate for hope, and our hope as followers of Jesus, does not rest in politics, but a person. His name is Jesus Christ. And in Hebrews chapter 6, 
Hebrews chapter 6, we read this. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil. Now, I have, I've happened to bring an anchor. Because what we have in Jesus is not just an idea. What we have in Jesus is not just a concept. What we have in Jesus is not just a system of thought. What we have in Jesus is a strong anchor. Now, if I dropped this anchor, what would happen? It'd go all the way to the ground, probably break the floor. So, Parker, I'm not going to drop it. What if, what if I dropped this anchor off the side of a boat with this rope attached to my waist? What would happen to me? I'd, I'd either become a really super strong swimmer or down goes Dave. And Jesus says, we have an anchor that doesn't pull us down. We have an anchor that lifts us up. We have an anchor that's tied to heaven. And that anchor isn't an idea, isn't a concept, isn't a theology. It's a person. We have one which enters within the veil, Jesus Christ. He is our anchor of hope. Is he yours? This morning, we're going to walk through John chapter 11, and we're going to see Jesus Christ initiate conflict, comfort, command, and change. Four things Jesus is going to do in this passage. Conflict, comfort, command, and change. So let's get going. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister, Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Now, Jesus is in Judea, on the, or Perea of Judea, on the other side of the Jordan River. So you see the arrow pointing to where Jesus is, to the east of the Jordan. And Mary and Martha and Lazarus are in Bethany. Bethany is about two miles from Jerusalem, and Jesus is out in the middle of nowhere, around 20 miles away. Bethany is to the east of Jerusalem, across the Kidron Valley, past the Mount of Olives, and it literally, the city of Bethany means house of poverty. And so it's on the wrong side of prosperity it's on the wrong side of power. It's on its way away from Jerusalem, where wealth and power and prestige dwell. 
But Jesus, interesting, where is Jesus? Jesus is even farther away from Jerusalem. You'd expect to find him in the place of power. He is, after all, a king. But Jesus takes his disciples. We're going to find out why in a moment. Jesus takes his disciples and he's hanging out in Perea where John the Baptist had been baptizing three years earlier, preparing the way for Jesus. And he receives word that his friend, his close friend whom he loves, Lazarus, is sick. Now the distance is approximate to the same as from St. Augustine to Palatka. And so he's in Palatka on the other side of the river, and he gets word that Lazarus, his good friend, his close friend, the one he loves, is sick. And you'd expect that Jesus would immediately leave Perea and rush back to Bethany. But what does he do? When Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. This he said, and after he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Jesus is entering into conflict. He's entering into conflict. He's going to enter into conflict with the religious leaders. That's what, that's what the disciples are most afraid of. They say, Jesus, we can't possibly go back to Judea. They'll stone, they were just trying to stone you. Don't you know if we go back, we'll die? But Jesus enters into conflict with the religious leaders. Jesus enters into conflict with death itself. The fallenness of this world that causes us to lose those we love. All of us have been touched by the death of someone we love. Jesus enters into conflict with death. Death is the penalty for sin. Death is the consequence of man's fallenness and the fallenness of this world. Jesus enters into conflict with it and he's victorious. But Jesus Christ in this passage 
he enters into, into conflict with something else. The greatest danger that maybe some of us face this morning. Now, let's do a quick exercise. Let's see how in tune you are with your college sports. Okay, so when I, if, think about the conflict in sports. It's between one team and another, and the greatest conflict is with what? Your rival, your biggest rival. So let's, let's see. The University of Michigan, who's their greatest rival? Ohio State. OH. There we go. I knew we had some Ohio State fans here. Okay, Michigan, Ohio State. Now, what about Duke University? North Carolina is their greatest rivalry. Tar. There we go. We're, you're getting it. Okay, one more. Okay, everybody should get this one. The University of Florida. Who is it? Florida State. F-L-O-R-I-D-A-S-T-A-T-E. Florida State, Florida State, Florida State. That's amazing. <laughs> All right. Now, Jesus has a rival. Who is it? It's the unbelief of our hearts. The greatest rival to Jesus Christ in your life isn't Satan or sin or the world, it's unbelief. And it's what Jesus Christ goes into conflict with through this story. Through this passage, Jesus is going into conflict with the unbelief of his followers, his disciples. I am glad for your sakes, that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Has Jesus gone after your unbelief? Has Jesus, the unrivaled Son of God, gone into battle against your own hearts unbelief, your slowness to believe in who he is and what he's done, your willingness to be distracted by so many other things, has Jesus Christ fought for you? Do you know it for certain that he's won you over? One of my favorite passages uh, from anyone's journal is Hudson Taylor's journal entry from June 25th, 1865. On Sunday, June 25th, 1865, unable to bear the sight of a congregation of a thousand or more Christian people rejoicing in their own security, while millions were perishing for lack of knowledge, I wandered out on the sands alone in great spiritual agony, and there the Lord conquered my unbelief, and I surrendered myself to God for this service. Has Jesus Christ done that for you? Has he conquered your unbelief? My prayer for you this morning and my prayer for myself is that I and we would be conquered by Jesus as he goes into conflict with the religious leaders? Certainly. With death? 
Yes, but with the greatest enemy, the greatest rival to his glory, unbelief. Therefore, Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his, his fellow disciples, let us also go so that we may die with him. So then Jesus came and he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him. But Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. Even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on, that, on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. When she had said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled and said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Now, not only is Jesus in this passage going into conflict with the greatest enemy to our soul, which is unbelief, Jesus comes to Martha and Mary with comfort. And he comes to every heart here with comfort. But interestingly, Martha and Mary, although they come to Jesus with exactly the same words, Lord, if you had been here, our brother would not have fallen asleep. Both sisters Come to Jesus saying the exact same thing, but Jesus responds in two very different ways. To one, he responds with truth, and to the other, he responds with tears. That Jesus Christ, to comfort us in his love, comes to us with both truth and tears. 
to Martha, who comes to him and says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus responds to her with truth. Your brother will rise again. And to Mary, when she comes to him with the exact same words, Lord, if you'd have been here, our brother would not have died. He comes to her with tears. Jesus wept. Students, if you're looking for a verse to memorize to impress your small group leaders this week, there it is. Shortest Bible verse in the English Bible, Jesus wept. Truth and tears. I'm so glad to be a Christian. I'm so glad to be a part of a local church. I'm so glad to be a pastor because I, for the last several decades, have watched the church be beautiful. And there is nothing more beautiful than the church when it acts like the church, when it holds out both truth and tears. Many years ago, someone said, people don't know what you know until they know that you care. The church is both truth and tears. We are both needy and needed. And when Jesus Christ, in his great love and compassion, comes to us, he comes to us with truth and with tears. And when the church lives before a watching world with both truth and tears, it has the power to bring unbelievable change. We desperately need both truth and tears. If there's a person in your life that you're desperate, that you're desperate to share the gospel with, and you know just the truth they need to hear, ask the Father to give you tears. And if there's a person that you're heartbroken over, that you're brokenhearted, that they don't yet know Christ, ask the Father to give you truth, boldness, to share with them, to share with them the truth of the gospel. You need both. You need truth and tears. And if you're naturally a truth person, ask the Father for just a little bit of tears. And if you're naturally a tears person, holding it down for the tears people, PCA, pastor cries a lot. If you're naturally a tears person, ask the Father to give you the truth. Jesus Christ is the perfect comforter, and he, through his church, brings perfect comfort to a lost world through truth and tears. And then, and then we see his command. And so the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. 
But some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have, not, have kept this man also from dying? So Jesus, again being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. And Jesus said, Remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you have sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said, unbind him and let him go. The conflict, the comfort, the command. There's a, there's a phrase that's repeated throughout the passage that Jesus is deeply moved within. Almost all your translations have that. But in the Greek, it literally would be translated, Jesus snorted with anger. He's furious. Not at Martha. Not at Mary. Not at Lazarus. Jesus is furious at death. Jesus took command of this situation. Have you, ever, have you ever been sitting around the dinner table? Everyone's talking, everyone's laughing, everyone's joking, and then finally dad has had enough. And he ends conversation, he ends laughter with a word or a look. Jesus takes command of this situation. When Jesus arrives at the tomb, no one is doubting who's in charge. Jesus is in charge. I have a friend who uh, is retired from the military now, but he at one time was a brigadier general over the Florida National Guard. And many, many people attended our church who were a part of the National Guard. And I would say, oh, I had just had lunch with Mike this week. And they would say, Mike, who's that? And then I'd remember that they don't know Mike. They know General Fleming. <laughs> they know the general. I got to know Mike. I don't wear the uniform. So I got to know Mike. They only knew the general. And when the general would walk into the room on Sunday, even though he never wore his uniform, he commanded their attention and their respect, as if he were in uniform. Jesus Christ arrives on the scene, and he commands by his presence 
authority, attention, respect. He is in charge of this situation. So much so that when Jesus Christ issues a command, Lazarus, come out. By his word, a dead man hopped out of the grave. Thought I was going to go one more hop, didn't you? Step back. A dead man hopped out of the grave, still wrapped in its cloths, four days dead, made alive by the command of Jesus Christ. Lazarus come out. Who, who can command the dead to live but the Son of God who made all things, in whom all things hold together, who is the author of life itself, and the one who keeps life going in his own person, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ commands the dead to rise, and they do. Lazarus, come forth. Have you? Has there been a moment in time where Jesus Christ commanded you, come forth? And did you? Did you obey him? By the power of the Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, did the Spirit raise you to new life? Did you put your trust in him and say like Mary, like Martha, yes, Lord. Jesus commands attention. He commands the dead to rise, and they do. And then Jesus changes everything. Jesus changes everything everything. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Therefore, the chief priests and Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? And this man is performing many signs, and if we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people, than that the whole nation that that the whole nation not perish. Now, he didn't say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Lazarus has changed. The followers of Jesus are changed. Jesus is changed. See, in order for Jesus to bring Lazarus out of the grave, Jesus had to go into the grave. In order for Jesus to give us eternal life, Jesus Christ had to be cut off from life and die in our place on the cross. 
In order for Jesus to give eternal life to us, he had to experience eternal separation from the Father. On the cross, Jesus Christ was cut off so that we could be brought in. For us to be changed, Jesus had to chase death all the way down to the bottom for us. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 says that all of us were dead in our trespasses and sins, but that God made us alive together with Christ. That when Jesus Christ died in our place as our substitute, he was paying the full and awful penalty that our sins deserved. And when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, he proved once and for all that every sin had been paid for in full. And if there was any sin that you had, never, you had ever committed that hadn't been paid for by Jesus on the cross, he would still rest in the grave and you would still be dead in your trespasses and sins. But since Jesus Christ rose from the dead, he has proven once and for all that the way of, his, of salvation, the way to eternal life has been opened to any who would believe on his name. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. Do you believe this? Do you? Do you believe it? Good. Is there anyone here who doesn't? Won't you admit to Jesus your death in sin? Won't you believe that Jesus is the way of salvation for you? Won't you commit your life to Jesus the same way Martha did? Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. And when you do, the anchor for your soul will be sure and certain in heaven. And you will be enabled to become a hope dealer. A hope dealer, just like Martha. Here's how to be a hope dealer. When she had said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. The way to be a hope dealer. Three words. Come and see. Come and see Jesus. He's calling for you. Come and see Jesus. It's the strategy of every hope dealer in the Gospels. The woman of Samaria, come see a man who told me everything about my life. Andrew to Peter, come and see. Philip to Nathaniel, come and see. Martha to Mary, come. P the, the friends of the paralytic, they carry their paralyzed friend to Jesus. Hope dealers have a simple strategy. Get people to Jesus. Come and see the teacher is calling. His name's Jesus. He's the resurrection and the life. No one, no one needs to face death without hope. 
Billy Graham, many, many years ago, said this in a book called The Jesus Revolution, or The Jesus Generation. My hope does not rest in the affairs of this world. It rests in Christ, who is coming again. After World War II, Billy Graham visited Germany, and he sat in the office of Chancellor Conrad uh, Adenauer, and uh, Conrad Adenauer asked Billy Graham, do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? And Billy Graham said this, apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I have no gospel. Chancellor Adenauer looked out the window of his, at his nation, devastated by World War II. And he said this, apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I know of no other hope for mankind. Aren't you glad you know Jesus, the resurrection, and the life? Go find. Go find someone. And tell them, come and see. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your death and resurrection on our behalf. Thank you that for our lives to be changed, you had to be changed. Jesus, you were willing to leave heaven and come to earth and put on our humanity and live the life we should have lived and die the death we deserve to die. Jesus, I pray that every heart here would take that good news into the center of their lives. Jesus, I pray that by your resurrection, you would raise the dead to life in this place. I pray that we could be filled with hope and become hope dealers who simply tell the lost world around us, come and see Jesus. He's the resurrection and the life. Jesus, I pray that we would each be able to say to you today, yes, Lord, I believe. I pray in your name. Amen.